Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the end of 1976. Jimmy Carter has just won his first term in the White House. Disco is thumping on dance floors worldwide. Everything is coated in an ever so thin layer of cocaine. And in jolly old England, Frank Williams is standing outside of Frank Williams Racing, wondering why his keys can't open the front door. He knocks again, and finally, one of his employees opens it. He points to a box near the side of the garage. Frank's belongings are inside. After a disastrous season in Formula One, Frank's business partner, Walter Wolf, decided that Frank Williams Racing no longer had a place for Frank Williams. He bought out Frank's remaining shares and crafted new liveries that read Wolf Racing. And to pour salt in Frank's wounds, the team finally won its first race, the 1977 Argentine Grand Prix, without the Williams name. Frank Williams had faced plenty of setbacks before, but had always found it within himself to continue. This was different. According to his wife, after he was booted from his own team, Frank didn't change out of his pajamas for six weeks. How did Frank Williams go on to build one of the most enduring teams in Formula One history, responsible for nine Constructors' Championships and seven Drivers' Championships? When was the moment that finally turned Frank's luck around? And how, after a life-altering accident, did Frank Williams keep going? Today on Pass Gas, the story of the legendary Frank Williams. Pass Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. I watched the documentary on Frank Williams on an airplane one time, mm-hmm. and me and Jesse both cried. Oh, wow. Yeah, you ever seen Jesse cry? No. Yeah. That's wild wild yeah i bet one tear falls down and then it immediately gets sucked back into his <laughs> eye he's like yeah can't show weakness <laughs> uh, and then his ears sparked <laughs> did you guys share earbuds uh no but we do a thing where we'll sync them nice perfectly oh wow. that's cute yeah we watched solo as well underrated that guy's only crime is being very charismatic and people thought that only harrison ford can be charismatic no that's han solo <laughs> Get off my plane, Chewie. Did a great job. Give me back my son, Chewie. <laughs> Does belong in a spaceship. <laughs> what? <laughs> Welcome back to Past Gas, everybody. Unfortunately, this is not a Star Wars lore show. Unfortunately. That would be fun. That would. Who shot first? Han shot first. Mm. Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald. Give yeah. me back my son. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is Past Gas, and automotive history program. This week we are talking about Frank Williams, the namesake of Williams Racing, current uh, F1 team. It's a wonder that they're still around. It's pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah, they they were really good at one point. They were. And well, now they get that sweet legacy money, right? They're owned by a company called Doralton Ventures, I believe mm. is what they're called. It's like a venture capitalist firm. I know the uh, type. Yeah. Uh, my name is Nolan Sykes. I'm joined by my co-hosts. Uh, we got Joe Weber on the ones and two. No, not really, but. Wicker, <laughs> <laughs> wicker. What's up, Slime Nation? <laughs> and James Pumphrey. There's a snake in my boot. <laughs> I made that up. <laughs> when you were six? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I was six. My toys used to come alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I want to thank everybody who sent me DMs and left comments uh, about Bonneville. The episode came out the week that we were on our way to Bonneville. Uh, Unfortunately, the event got rained out, 
and we did not make any runs. Nature gave us too much of that brine. You went there to race a car, and you ended up at a boat race. (laughs) Basically. Reinhard showed up in their tiny little jet boat. (laughs) It was crazy. So much rain. There's like three inches of water in our pit. It's more of a regatta. Yeah. More like sea speed records. Am I right? Yep. Yep. You got covered in the wet. Yes. Yeah. But uh, I bet your pants were all stiff when you got it. My shoes actually got super, uh, the salt like crystallized my shoes and made them very, like almost into clogs, basically. That's sick. Yeah. Did you frame them? No, I tossed them. Oh. Yeah. Dude, that's uh, ancient money you're throwing away. (laughs) Ancient money. Yeah. Ancient money. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I want to thank everybody who uh, uh, lent their words of encouragement. Uh, All you past gas listeners, we got too much of the brine. And I, Brian I'm sorry. You got to make Brian Life stickers. Brian Life. <laughs> but yeah, looking forward to going back out there next year. Hopefully we can run and not get too much of that Brian. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about Frank Williams. Let's. Sir Frank Williams. That was not his birth name. He became a sir later. Yeah. yeah. Well, as one does. Yeah. Uh, was born on April 16th, 1942, in the working-class Jarrow neighborhood of South Shields, England. You can't, you can't knight a baby because their skulls are too soft. Yeah. 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 If you put a sword on top, it's going to fold around. Straight goop. His father, a Royal Air Force pilot in World War II, abandoned his mother soon after Frank's birth. She and his aunt and uncle raised Frank until he was sent off to Catholic boarding school in Scotland. Even though he liked his classes enough, Frank would often hop the school's walls so he could go hitchhiking or jump a train. Hell yeah. Basically, Frank loved movement, however he could get it. But his life changed the day he took a ride in a friend's Jaguar XK150. The experience left no question in Frank's mind. He was a car nut. Yeah, I'm a car nut. Uh, what's one thing about me? I'm a car nut. <laughs> <laughs> After school, most of his friends went off to university, but Frank wanted freedom. With help from his mother, he bought a beat-up Austin A35 for 80 quid. He took it racing at Mallory Park and smashed it into the bank at Gerard Bend. Driver Jonathan Williams, no relation, had crashed in the same spot just a few laps earlier, so he helped Frank out the back window of his A35. The two fast friends watched the rest of the race together up from the bank. Despite the crash, Frank was hooked. I'm hooked on this thing called racing. I'm a bit of a nut. I'm a bit of a car nut. (laughs) (laughs) Car nuts on BBC America. Car nuts starring (laughs) Jamie Clarkson on BBC America. What happens when a car nut's toys come alive? (laughs) (laughs) Driving like he got a snake in his boot. (laughs) (laughs) To infinity and beyond. Jonathan introduced Frank to driver Pierce Courage, and the three became fast friends, no pun intended, racing each other. Fast friends on the BBC. (laughs) Fast friends starring Jeremy Clarkson on the BBC. (laughs) Racing each other constantly. What happens when your former favorite toy is no longer your favorite toy? (laughs) Uh, Frank, an obsessive tinker, built his A35 running gear into an A40 chassis and would frequently face off against Jonathan's brand-new Austin A40. Meanwhile, Pierce built a Lotus 7 from a kit, starting to hone his skills. That's cool. Mm -hmm. By 1965, Frank had strounged together enough cash to buy a used F3 Brabham Formula 3 car. He also moved into what would become an infamous flat in Pinner Row, Harrow. That's the most English-sounding place. In a row, in a row. <laughs> the place was pretty much a motorsports frat house. Dude, a freaking content house, dude. dude <laughs> it's like hype house, but for cars. Shout out to 100 Thieves. <laughs> With now legendary racers who moved in and out constantly. Its denizens included Jonathan Williams, the aforementioned, uh, Piers Porridge, Cur- his name was Nickname was Porridge? Yeah, it's got a coolest name ever. They had Here's to, they had to Porridge Courage. soften him up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie Lucas, <laughs> Roger Bunting, Anthony Bubbles Horsley, <laughs> and Inez Ireland. Wow. What a motley crew. Uh, despite the fact that most of the crew is made up of, quote, prep school boys who fancied motorsport, 
the fledgling racers often didn't have the money for standard repairs. For example, at one point, Pierce stood the bent frame of his Brabham up against the wall and backed his tow car into it to straighten it back out. <laughs> That's cool. But this is nothing compared to Frank's experience at the flat. He made a lot of TikToks. Uh, at one point, he slept in a sleeping bag in the garage because there was no room in the actual house for him. He was barely scraping by, but completely obsessed with racing. Dude, I'll sleep in the garage. I'll do anything it Dude, takes. she said it's either me or the car. I'm really going to miss it. I'll say I pick. I'm going to go sleep next to porridge and bubbles in the, <laughs> in the lockup. Yeah. Soon, Frank developed a reputation as a wild man who couldn't lay off the gas. Uh, tell me about it. Yeah, he would consistently lose races, running his car off the track because he refused to slow down. But Frank didn't care. His only competition was with himself, always pushing to see how much faster he could go. This obsession with speed bled over into his regular road driving, with Frank rolling his mother's Morris 1000 and nearly any other car he piloted. His insurance was insane. <laughs> At first, Frank supported himself by selling soup for Campbell's. Nice. Huh. He was I, racing for soup. I, don't they have stores for that? I used to do bowling for soup. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, his soup slinging got in the way of his racing, so he quit to become an unpaid mechanic for Jonathan Williams, his old buddy. At the time, there was no one a young driver would rather have work on their car than Frank. He eventually supported himself by buying parts to resell at a markup. And eventually, Frank got so good at rebuilding cars that he could buy a beat-up Brabham, fix it, steal a new chassis number from the Brabham garage, and then sell the car back to the original owner as though it were a brand new Brabham. <laughs> and it might as well have been because Frank Williams built it. Something that always surprises me about these old England stories is that everything was sold door-to-door. -door. Uh -huh. Tea cozies, oh, yeah. soup. <laughs> uh, Paddington bears. Yeah. It's like Amazon. But kind of luck of the draw. Yeah. What do you got today? Nail files. I don't need one. <laughs> Come back when you have some soup. I'm starving. <laughs> I only eat soup delivered to my house. While the rest of his friends were content driving their F3s into the ground, Frank wanted more. He scraped together enough money for a used Cooper and then a brand new Brabham F3. By 1966, he was dealing exclusively in single-seaters, which was very lonely but very fast. <laughs> Frank started calling his business Frank Williams Racing Cars Limited. Soon after, he realized he didn't have the driving skill to match his courage, so Frank stepped aside and started entering his friends as his drivers. You gotta know when to hold them. Gotta know when to fold them. Mm -hmm. You gotta know when to walk away. You gotta know when to let your friend drive you away. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's after you crash seven cars. Yeah. That's yeah. the limit. Now, while Frank had become a master constructor, Pierce Courage had built a name for himself as a driver. He drove a 1966 Lotus 41 in F3, and though it was an objectively inferior machine to the Brabham's, he still outraced them. By the time the 1966 German Grand Prix came around, Pierce had stepped up to F2, but he crashed out. Didn't really matter, though, because in 1967, Pierce signed with the BRM Works Formula One team. BRM? Yeah, I recognize that name. Pierce was officially the most gifted driver of the Pinner Road Boys, but he never forgot where he came from. The Pinner House, where we pin it. Yeah, we pin it. Pinner Road Boys, we sleep in the lockup together. <laughs> <laughs> it's me, Bubbles and Porridge. It's me and Bubbles and Porridge. We eating mail order soups. <laughs> In 1967, Frank's F2 team made its debut and ran Pierce in a Brabham BT21 at Brands Hatch. In 1968, Pierce and Frank split a new F2 Brabham BT21, and Pierce moonlit as Frank's F2 driver while also racing for BRM. Frank was also running an F3 car for driver Richard Burton. Richard Burton. Richard Burton. Oh, Richard Burton. Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> It's my wife, Helena Bottom Carter. By 1969, nice, the always scrappy Frank had convinced enough sponsors to back him that he was able to buy an X-Works Brabham F1 car with two 2.5-liter Cosworth engines, a BT-26A. He entered Pierce in that year's Tasman series, and despite driving an older car against top-of-the-line Lotuses and Ferraris, Pierce won at Teratonga. 
That's cool. Frank now committed to Grand Prix racing, wanting a top-of-the-line Brabham BT26 car. Of course, seeing the threat that he and Pierce posed, the team refused to sell him one. But that wouldn't stop old Frank. No, boy. He skirted the embargo when he heard that the team was selling a new BT26 to a club racer on the promise that it would be turned into an F5000 machine. Frank persuaded the club driver to sell it to him, which infuriated Ron Taronk and the Brabham team. He swooped it. Is F5000, is that like a 5000 cc engine? Yeah, I believe so. Sounds like it. Five liter. Wow. Big. It's a big. It's like a Mustang GT. Yeah. But British as but hell. British as hell. That's only 302 cubic centimeters or cubic inches. Yeah. Yeah. Not big, big. Little. It's a small block. Yeah. yeah. But it's on a little tiny car. 5.0 makes it sound big. Yeah. Yeah. 302. Makes it sound little. Yeah. But you take into account that the thing's probably about as big as a shopping cart. The car. Oh, yes. And the guy. Yeah. Rips. Oh, I'm sorry. 305. 305 okay. cubic okay. inches. No, I'm fine. You're Before okay. someone sends an email. Yeah. Don't send us any emails. With Frank's skill as an engineer and Pierce's gift behind the wheel, and despite having almost no money, they placed second at Monaco, finishing 17 seconds behind then-world champion Graham Hill. You ever heard of him? I have. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Frank Williams Racing finished the series third overall behind Chris Ammon and Jochen Rint after placing second again at the U.S. Grand Prix and after leading the majority of the race in Monza after he placed fifth due to a fuel deficiency. Now, Formula One had to take the small privateer racing team operated by a lone broke racing fanatic seriously. Gotta take me seriously Gotta now. Take, I'm not just a soup boy anymore. <laughs> In 1970, enticed by their performance the previous season, Italian sports car manufacturer Alejandro de Tommaso mm. approached Frank and Pierce. He wanted it. Uh, he's an Argentinian. He's Argentinian, but he was an Italian sports car manufacturer. That is true. He wanted in. De Tommaso provided them three custom chassis designed by Gian Paolo De Lara. But rising star that he was, Pierce was offered to drive for the Ferrari team. The offer came with clout, legitimacy, and a good hunk of cash for the young driver. Despite the temptation, Pierce told them, No, I'm a Williams boy. Okay, loyal, loyal boy, this porridge guy. Unfortunately, the De Tommaso 503-38 that Delara had designed for the team was overweight and poorly constructed, much like myself, and <laughs> failed to finish in the first four races of the season. But despite an underwhelming start, Courage managed to qualify ninth at the Dutch Grand Prix. Hmm, Zandvoort. The race itself seemed to be going smoothly, and the talented driver worked his way up to seventh place. Then... At the tunnel, Unst, Courage's car hit a bump that damaged the suspension. He lost control and ran off the track, up an embankment, and flipped before the car burst into flames. The 28-year-old driver was killed instantly. Oh, Jeez. That's sad. You not only had to pronounce a bunch of names in this one, but also a death. I think I did pretty good with the names. Yeah. But yeah, the death. <laughs> Sadly, as we know, this sort of disaster was all too common in the early days of racing. The cars were death traps back then. They caught fire easily, and the fuel systems leaked at even the slightest impact. In head-on collisions, chassis tended to wrap themselves around the driver and pin them in the cockpit. The same year that Pierce died saw the deaths of Frank's friend, Jochen Rint, uh, and as well as racing legend Bruce McLaren. As we've talked about many times on this podcast, this was not a sport for the faint of heart. And that's three more deaths I had to talk about. Whew. That's a sad year for the sport. Those are some big names. Yeah. Frank was understandably devastated by Pierce's death. I mean, that's his boy. That's, that's his boy, Pierce. Yeah. Him and Horsey and Porridge used to all sleep in the lean-to. Yeah. <laughs> the lock-up. <laughs> De Tommaso, disillusioned with the sport now, left F1 entirely. The team was left with no budget and had just tragically lost their star driver. Williams finished out the year with the second car De Matoso had left behind with De Bruce Tommaso. De Tommaso, thank you, with Bruce Redman and Tim Schnecken driving. Tim Schnecken. Schnecken. That's like a like an elementary school teacher name, uh -huh. Mister Schnecken. Mister yeah. Schnecken. I had a there was a kindergarten teacher at my at my elementary school named Mrs. Diefenderfer. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Yeah. Mrs. Diefenderfer, super nice lady. Uh, 
Yeah, we had some uh, fun. <laughs> some good times. Yep. Mr. Schnecken. Mr. Schnecken. Yeah. I saw Mr. Schnecken necking with Diefendorf. <laughs> oh, no. Bleachers. <laughs> I saw Mr. Schnecken working at Nordstrom over the summer break, and it was weird. <laughs> Gotta pay those teachers more. Even with all that death that surrounded him, it never occurred to Frank to quit. Frank spent the next few years barely drumming off enough sponsorship money to keep the team together. The rising star of the lone privateer from Jaro slowly began to sink, with the Williams name becoming a joke. Drivers warned each other that you'd ruin your career by racing with Williams. There's a famous story of the phone lines at the factory being cut off because Frank couldn't pay the bill. So he ran the business from a public call box nearby. That's a phone booth. Yeah. Is that one of those red, I red guys? So. It's got to be. Yeah, in England, they red. Despite it's the a, hard... It's a TARDIS. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a police box. Those are blue. Oh. Yeah. Those go immediately to the police. Can it... Wait, so, so police don't... It's not like a police call box? I believe that's what, like, the police use to, like, call dispatch and stuff like that. Okay, so they're... If the police are in trouble, they go to the a bobbies. The bobbies. Yeah. yeah. Bobbies. Oh, no. The Peaky Blind has done it again. Send a, <laughs> send a lorry. Send a lorry for all these Peaky Blinders. <laughs> Despite the hardship, 1972 saw the first F1 car built by the Williams Works. The Poly Toys FX3 designed by Len Bailey. Unfortunately, Williams driver Henry Pescarolo crashed and destroyed it at its first race. Henry, it's the first race, mate. <laughs> While Frank Williams racing was in hard times, it wasn't all doom and gloom in Frank's life. In 1974, he married Virginia Ginny Berry, a woman who had become the unseen backbone of Frank's racing endeavors. Ginny Berry. Ginny Berry. Ginny. Ginny. A Lungardian Levioso. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Ginny first met Frank seven years earlier in 1967 at a garage he owned. She was engaged to be married to a different man who kept his cars at Frank's garage. As she later describes in her book, A Different Kind of Life, it was love at first sight. But still, a conflicted Ginny went through with her wedding. But Ginny's mind never wandered from the handsome racer she met at the garage. She would go out of her way to see Frank. Once, she sat in the front of his apartment for a week hoping he would step out to get a newspaper so she could pretend to bump into him and force a meet-cute. She stunk. Yeah. This is called stalking now, but back then it was true love. Just the same pajamas. Yeah, I was thinking that. Hi. <laughs> oh, you fancy. You paper, did you? Fancy meeting you here. Can I have a cup of water, please? <laughs> I'm so thirsty. <laughs> Can I use your loo? <laughs> I've been defecating in the locker. All right. <laughs> uh, I gotta go. Return some videotapes. <laughs> Ginny's husband was also a racer, so she and Frank ran in the same circles and developed a friendship and a, shall we say, mutual fondness for one another. Mm. Eventually, this, Cheeky. 
Cheeky. Eventually, this fondness came to a head at a party when Jimmy and Frank were dancing very closely, oblivious to the rest of the room. <laughs> Little did they know, everyone was staring at them. <laughs> One of Frank's friends interrupted them and said, Are you crazy? Her husband's staring at you too. To which he replied, So? They were just friends after all. Her husband was furious. Ava Kadavra. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of worlds. There's Toy Story, there's Harry Potter. <laughs> Soon after, Ginny left her husband and moved into a flat by herself. She wanted to tell Frank right away, but was nervous she'd seem desperate and scare him away. So instead of being direct and knowing that Frank didn't drink, she wrote him a letter inviting him over for a glass of his favorite drink, orange juice. Orange juice, or as they call it, they call it in England, a spitty mumpstins. Yeah. <laughs> a squeezy pop. Yeah, a, a, a bottle of orange poppies. <laughs> Frank buzzed her door and simply said, I'm looking for some orange juice oh. and a good time <laughs> <laughs> frank and Ginny were married unceremoniously at a register's office using money frank borrowed from his best friend david brody to buy the ring then they went back to work Ginny adored frank and frank while he was certainly in love with Ginny, was obsessed with racing he leaned on Ginny for money time and time again to keep the team afloat in those lean years after pierce courage's death once she gave him eight pounds to buy dinner, and Frank bought spark plugs with it, <laughs> and then didn't come home for three days. Oh, Frank, come on. Frank, come on, man. You got to balance it, man. In 1975, Frank Williams Racing was still struggling. The car designer, Jean Paolo Delara, introduced Frank to the charismatic Canadian oil billionaire, Walter Wolf, who slowly, from before, remember? Remember? Foreshadowing. It's called storytelling, guys. Try and keep up. <laughs> Maybe Craig. Crack books sometime? Yeah, maybe try crack books sometime, right? <laughs> Wolf slowly funneled money to the team. Eventually, Wolf agreed to buy out Frank's debt and pay for engines in exchange for controlling 60% share of the team. And that would spell the end, eventually, of Frank Williams Racing. By some accounts, Frank chose to walk away from the team and sold his shares. But according to Frank himself, he showed up at the garage to find the locks changed and his things in a box outside. As we mentioned in the opening, Wolf rebranded the team and changed their liveries. Three weeks later, the team that Frank built won their first race at the end of 1976. Yeah, but Frank set the foundation for it. He did all the hard work. Yeah, that's a Williams racing team, not a Wolf. Aaron Parker. <laughs> Aaron Parker, why'd you kick Frank out? Very inside joke. Our friend Aaron uh, has a company called Wolf Racing. Is it Wolf Racing or wolf, wolf Wiring? Mm -hmm. Just go on his Instagram. Sure. After six weeks of Frank moping around the house, Ginny had had enough. His pajamas stunk, and he was <laughs> bumming her out. She called a friend for help who came over to talk to Frank. The friend told him he had a connection with the Belgian beer company Bellevue, mm. and they were interested in backing Frank for the 1977 season. If he would agree to hire Patrick Neve, a Belgian driver... That night, Williams Grand Prix Engineering Limited, one of the most enduring names in Formula One racing, was born. Hell yeah. Frank's first move was to hire the brilliant engineer Patrick Head away from the old Williams Yo, team. Patty Head! Yo, Pat Head, I got an idea for you. <laughs> it's me, Frank. <laughs> I thought you were British. <laughs> oh, right, I am. <laughs> Though Head was a mastermind, with an appropriate last name. He had an in <laughs> he had an intense personality. Junior members of the team were terrified to make a mistake around him. But with that intense personality came an intense focus. Like Frank Williams, Patrick Head wanted to win. He wanted to be out ahead of the competition. <laughs> Head started making Frank's cars better, and by 1978, the cars finally started finishing races. Frank signed the boisterous, hard-drinking Australian Alan Jones to drive the new, lightweight FW06. While Jones didn't take home a win, he placed fourth in the South African Grand Prix and second in the U.S. The combination of Jones and Head held promise. 
1978, Frank hired a visionary young designer named Frank Durney to help Another head- Frank? Another Frank. Two Franks don't make it right. <laughs> Frank Durney to help with the design of the FW07. Allegedly, Durney pushed for Williams to buy a used wind tunnel, which made them the only team to own their own. Together, they pushed to implement innovative designs in the new car. The Williams team was an early adopter of what would become known as ground effects cars. Mm. They featured an aerodynamic skirt that pushed the car down onto the track, helping them maintain a low profile and increased grip. Yeah, so the ground effects cars, the skirts are just one component. The bottom of the car is kind of shaped like an airfoil. It creates a really super low pressure zone underneath the car. Uh, which helps kind of <laughs> suck to the track. Yeah, suck it down on the um, track. And suck you don't need down. as many aerodynamic elements on top of the car, which, uh, you know, Adds reduces lightness, drag. Reduces drag. Yeah. Also reduces the amount of, like, turbulent air off the back. Mm-hmm. It's like ba- it's the basis of what today's F1 cars are now. They use a lot of ground effect. And, and it was seen as better. cheating back then, right? Yeah, because it was just so Wild. powerful. Yeah. yeah. I, I watched the Tony Hawk documentary, and uh-huh. he was the first to start ollieing out of the deep end of the pool. Mm-hmm. And the other competitors tried to get it banned because they thought it was cheating. <laughs> so wait, you don't normally like just like fly out of the bowl? Well, he was. They do now, but he was he was so oh. young and weak that he couldn't blast the transition. As hard as the other ones oh, to just fly out. To like preload so he it, had basically? to actually like pop the tail and ollie out of oh, the see. coping. Interesting. Yeah. In 1979, F1 was pushing for teams to consist of two drivers. So Frank hired Clay Regazzoni from Switzerland to drive as his number two alongside Jones. In the beginning of the season, the FW07 was competitive but not winning. Head and Durney worked to improve the aerodynamics of the car, and by pre-race testing for the British Grand Prix, it was the fastest outright. The car was small, simple, and extremely light, with skirts that touched the grounds at all times. But many claim that the FW07 was little more than a re-engineered Lotus 79. But that shade didn't make the Williams any slower. In fact, it allowed the to go fast. <laughs> <laughs> British Grand Prix saw Jones quickly take the lead with Regazzoni in third. By lap 17, Regazzoni had moved to second. The two Williams cars dominated the next 22 laps, but Jones eventually retired with an overheated engine. Oh, man. Regazzoni took over the lead and won the race by nearly 25 seconds, giving wow. Williams his first win. There it is. And on his home turf at Silverstone, no less. The scene at the press conference was an emotional one, with Regazzoni telling his nearly speechless boss, a bravo, Frank. A bravo, bravo, bravo. Here's a watch, and here's a Victorinox knife. <laughs> Let's go get some goulash. <laughs> Is that Swiss? Is it Switzerland? Yeah, it's Hungarian like, I, goulash. I feel like he's like northern Italy. Oh, yeah, Regazzoni. Like sw- yeah. The team won the next three Grand Prix as the pair pulled a 1-2 in Germany and Jones won in Austria and Holland. Regazzoni took third at Monza and the final race of the season saw Jones closely following Ferrari's Guy Villeneuve. Fortunately, Jones had to retire from the race after leaving the pit too early and losing his wheel. That's like a Toy Story C-plot. They come alive. (laughs) They're not nice. (laughs) Wait... You're telling me the Ninja Turtles and the toys from Toy Story are not nice? Yeah, Ninja Turtles are real. They are not nice. (laughs) My toys come alive at night. They are also not nice. And not just mischievous. Scary. (laughs) Spiteful. (laughs) Malicious. Conniving. Conniving. Creative. And somehow very well funded. (laughs) Machiavellian (laughs) in nature. Despite this misstep, Frank had done it. Almost overnight, his team had gone from a laughing stock to the team to beat in Formula U. The first driver's championship and constructor's championships both came in 1980 with Australian driver Alan Jones as the winning Williams driver. The Williams team remained competitive throughout most of the 80s. One interesting season was 1982, 
when Alan Jones retired from racing and Frank replaced him with Finnish driver Kiki Rosberg. Kiki Rosberg. Rosberg hadn't scored a single point the prior year, but when he joined up with Frank, he took home the driver's championship for the season. Just goes to show that just because someone doesn't have great results doesn't mean they're a bad driver. Right. They need the car. They need the ride. Yeah. (laughs) They need the team. F1's a team sport. There's hundreds of people in these teams. Mm -hmm. How many people are on a basketball team? Mm. 30. Nine. There's 34 on a football team. I'm watching hard. 51 (laughs) total roster, though. Really? Yeah. Not everyone can make it. Some of you guys are looking for opportunities. Some of you guys are looking for playtime. Some of you guys are just looking for a spot on the roster. So Is that from Friday Night Lights? Nope, it's from Hard Knocks, Detroit oh, Lions. <laughs> By 1983, turbo engines had started showing up in races, and Frank needed one to remain competitive. He was like, oh, I need one of those hot little snails on my car. I need it more than a Bucket of orange juice. I love orange juice, but a DFX engine would do me wrong. (laughs) He turned to Honda, and they worked out a deal to get Frank the engine by the end of the season. Despite being underpowered against the new turbo engines, Rosberg still managed a win for Williams at Monaco. 84 was an adjustment year for the team, with head designing the FW09 around the new turbo engines. That season, Rosberg earned a single win at Dallas and placed second in Brazil. Fortunately, by 1985, Head had ironed out the issues with the car and the Williams team was once again competitive. The ultralight FW10, the team's first carbon fiber chassis, Britt Nigel Mansell, you ever heard of him? Nolan has, joined Rosberg for the season and won in Detroit, Australia, Brands Hatch, and South Africa. In the qualifying round for that year's British GP, K.K. Rosberg set the record for the fastest lap in Formula One history, clocking in at minute 5.591, a record that would stand for the next 17 years. That's at Silverstone? Mm-hmm. While not dominant, the Williams team was once again competitive and held promise. Well, things are going well, you know. They're uh, probably just going to stay good. Yep. Things are going great. <laughs> We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. By 1986, Rosberg had left the team to drive for McLaren, and Frank replaced him with two-time world champion Nelson Piquet. He and Mansell were doing final tests for the newly designed FW11, a car with a Honda 1.5-liter V6 turbo engine and superior aerodynamics that made it the most powerful car on the track. Before the season began, Williams sent its two-star drivers down to the south of France to do some final tests at Paul Ricard. Frank, always moving, was due home to compete in a half marathon. Didn't he used to run the track? Or did he used to bike it Probably, or something? Yeah. I, th- I think I remember that from the, his documentary. Very active guy. On Saturday, March 8th, he and Williams PR head Peter Windsor were driving a rented Ford Sierra back to the airport. Despite retiring from driving decades earlier, Frank still drove like a racer. The pair hit a sharp turn, and Frank lost control of the vehicle, hit a wall, and launched off the highway completely. The car landed on its roof, with Frank trapped inside. Frank came to upside down and was unable to move. The smell of fuel started filling the air. Miraculously, however, Peter Windsor was unscathed. He pulled a nearly dead Frank Williams from the wreck, and they waited for help. Frank was sure he wouldn't make it and pleaded with Windsor for last rites. After the accident, Frank was paralyzed from the shoulders down and was declared clinically dead three different times by the French doctors. His wife, Ginny, flew down to Marseille to see him. Though he could barely speak, he told her, Ginny, as I see it, I've had 40 fantastic years of one sort of life. Now I shall have another 40 years of a different kind of life. Certain that the French doctors had given up on her husband, Ginny had Frank brought back to England. They performed a tracheotomy that saved Frank's life. From then on, Ginny was Frank's primary caregiver, putting in more time at his bedside than any of Frank's nurses. While Frank was recovering, the Williams team pressed on, with Patrick Head taking over in Frank's absence. Before their first race of the season in Brazil, the team gathered together and said, let's do this one for Frank. PK won the race and set the stage for what would, despite Frank's accident, be an incredible season for Williams Racing. 
Together, Mansell and PK would win a total of nine Grand Prix. Dang. That's a good team. Good season. <sighs> now, to say that Nelson PK and Nigel Mansell didn't get along would be an understatement. These guys hated each other. Mansell was a great driver, but by all accounts, he was difficult to work with. He was known for his constant whining and bickering with team management. In comparison, Brazilian Nelson Piquet was the life of the party. He had a private yacht with a helicopter on it. He flew in the fastest private jet in the world, and people just wanted to be around him. But Piquet had a chip on his shoulder as the lone foreigner on an all-British team. He had been told that he was Williams' number one driver, but Mansell kept trying to pass him. You know, it's racing. That's what you do. The two bickered so much that at one point they took their fighting to the hospital to try to have a bedridden Frank settle it. Isn't Max dating Nelson's daughter yeah, or granddaughter? Yeah, Kelly PK. Yeah. Max Verstappen. Not. Trying to make a little baby racer, huh? Uh, well, she already has a child with former F1 driver Daniel Kafiat. They have a child. And... Uh, if you listen to our you are hiding a child, you are hiding a child. Uh, but if you listen to our other podcast, uh, Donut Racing Show, you will know that Max Verstappen and Daniel Kafiat go to the same family functions, the PK family functions. They'll Ooh. they crop each other out of photos. Basically. <laughs> oh, uh, wow. Yeah, croppers. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So check out Donut Racing Show. By the way, uh, fun. I, I host it along with Alanis King and Elizabeth Blackstock. It's a great time. It's very good. You should check it out. Every Wednesday after a race weekend. Frank made his first appearance after his accident at the British Grand Prix, and the audience erupted in applause at first sight of his wheelchair. And as for Williams Racing, thanks to PK and Mansell's stellar driving, they again won the Constructors' Championship for the 1986 season. Ginny accepted the trophy on Frank's behalf. He would officially rejoin the team one year later. For the 87 season, the Williams drivers again brought home nine wins, and Williams once again won the Constructors' Championship for the second year in a row, with driver PK the winner of the Drivers' Championship. Despite this success, Honda pulled out of its deal to provide Frank with engines, allegedly due to the drivers' squabbling and Williams' refusal to hire a Japanese driver. That's dumb. That's a dumb move. You know, deals are contingent on things. <laughs> That's my business tip right if there. If you just won a championship, why would you be like, I'm stepping away from this championship team. I mean, it's classic Honda. They do this all the time. Yeah, Honda's like, <clears throat> oh, we're not doing it anymore a lot. For reasons that are nebulous and known only to them. Mm -hmm. Frank was left to field naturally aspirated engines in 88. They didn't win a single race that season against the turbocharged cars of the competition. However, this set the stage for a Renault partnership that would see Williams competitive once again. And by competitive, we mean completely dominant. Dominant. Between 1989 and 1997, Renault's engines helped Williams bring home four constructors' championships and four drivers' Whoa. championships. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think um, that's pretty good if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe try read books sometime. Maybe try crack books sometime. In 1992, Nigel Mansell dominated the season. That mustache did so much work. Winning the first five races of the season for Frank, often followed closely by his teammate, Ricciardo Patrese. The streak only stopped when Ayrton Senna managed to block Mansell at every turn in Monaco. And at the end of the season, Mansell had placed first in nine races, a new record for Formula One. He would become world champion that year, and Frank won another Constructors' Championship. Um, if you ask me, it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> 1993 saw the debut of myself and the FW15C. One of the most. 93? Mm -hmm. They wow. said he was the quickest baby ever <laughs> to be born that year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 it's like a Doppler effect. <laughs> the FW15C was one of the most sophisticated F1 cars of all time. It had anti-lock brakes, active suspension, traction control, and both a semi and fully automatic gearbox. Driven by Alan Prost, it dominated the field that year, bringing in seven wins, the world championship, and another constructors championship for Frank. Plus, all that cool stuff got banned because the car was too dominant. In 1994, Ayrton Senna, a longtime Frank Williams fan. Yo, dude, love the Pinner House. Uh, 
I wish I could have seen the peanut house. <laughs> <laughs> that content was so cool. It's such cool. Uh, he finally joined Team Williams. So much a soup. <laughs> but F1 had moved to ban the electronic driver's aids that helped make the FW15C so dominant. As a result, the new FW16 had speed, but was very hard to control. In an attempt to alleviate the car's shortcomings, the Williams team brought modified FW16s to Imola. Tragically, on lap 7, Senna lost control of the car and ran headfirst into a wall at 145 miles per hour and passed away. Because of the modifications to the FW16, Italian courts would charge Frank with manslaughter in the death of Ayrton Senna. I never knew about this. Yeah. These charges were dropped in 2005. And despite Senna's death, the Williams team took home the Constructors' Championship that year. The rest of the 1990s were dotted with Williams' Grand Prix victories. Williams won the Constructors' Championship in 96 and 97. The team remained competitive in the early 2000s with sporadic wins. But by 2004... <laughs> New from Marvel. Okay. <laughs> The team remained competitive in the early 2000s with sporadic wins, but by 2004, things weren't looking good. Between 2004 and 2012, Williams Grand Prix Engineering didn't take home a single win. They were being outcompeted and outfinanced by teams from Red Bull, Mercedes, and Ferrari. Their budget was roughly half that of their competition. In 2010, Ginny was diagnosed with cancer. In 2012, Frank would step down from the board of Williams, leaving their daughter Claire in charge. However, Frank remained team principal until 2020. In 2013, Ginny passed away. For almost all of his career, certainly all the successful years, Ginny had been the unseen force behind Frank. Ginny supported him in his leanest years and in his darkest times. And after her death, Frank stopped going home to their house, instead choosing to sleep on a bed in the Williams factory, saying, why go home? That's sad as fuck. Yeah. Yeah, man. In 2020, Claire Williams stepped away from the team to spend time with her family. And since then, the Williams family has not been involved with the team at all. And in 2021, Sir Frank Williams passed away. Frank's life was a true rags to riches story. He was a constant underdog who had no business competing with the Formula One establishment. But Frank Williams embodied doing it for the love of the game. He was a dedicated disciple of motorsports from the moment he could drive until his death. Under Frank's leadership, Williams Grand Prix Engineering won seven driver's titles and nine constructor's championships. Even though they've had a tough run of it recently, Williams is one of the most storied, most respected names in Formula One history. It is really hard to watch them lose every single weekend when there's such a legacy. Mm -hmm. They're behind Ferrari for the most world constructor championships. I mean, Ferrari yeah, has like six more, crazy. but like Williams is second highest. They have nine to Ferrari 16 and then McLaren and Mercedes are behind them with eight. So they're not doing super hot now, but mm -hmm. they were hot for a long time. For sure. Yeah. It's crazy to not be competitive for 20 years and still kind of coast off this dynasty. Mm-hmm. They'll be back. They'll be back. I'd like to take this opportunity to announce my 60% stake <laughs> in Williams Racing. It's called James Wolf Enterprises. What's your strategy? Huh? What's your strategy? Well, for why don't you tell me, principal? Oh! oh! Owen Sykes is the principal for <laughs> Williams Pumphrey Racing. <laughs> and uh, Joe Weber is our driver. Uh, <laughs> yes. Move over, Latifi. Yeah, I got to get some sim time now. Yeah, man, you better get on it. <laughs> you got two weeks. <laughs> Wait, do you guys know uh, any places that sell sims? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got some fan mail. Hey, guys, this is from Thomas D. Tommy D. Tommy D. Tommy. <laughs> I've been watching since the first high low. It's an audio format. <laughs> I love waking up to hear the new episode. I have a very important question for Joe. Is there any chance that I can be a general for the army that is Wink Wink Nation? Well, well, <laughs> the funny thing is, uh, uh, we were threatened by the U.S. government because we're, we're, oh. I came out as a sovereign nation. Yeah, yeah. And I said, there are no gods, no rulers. And they actually sent me a cease and desist. <laughs> wow. And I can't. 
I can't promote my army, <laughs> especially on air. So yeah, I'll give you a cabinet position. Uh, treasurer. We'll give you uh, treasurer's my sister. So oh okay. We'll say you're oh, secretary you actually have of the keeping position. it real, Tommy D. Your sovereign nation is only your car, though, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's why it makes it so hairy when I go over state lines and stuff. Yeah. So when you're in your car. You're a man of your own devices. Yeah. So Tommy D, secretary of keeping it real. Wow. You are knighted. Wow. wow. You guys have a Sir royal Tommy wow. D. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for your for your email there, Thomas. Um, if you want to hit us up, you can do so at passgas at donutmedia.com. Maybe we'll read your email on air, and maybe Joe can give out more cabinet positions. Let's pump the brakes on that okay. a little bit. I, there's only so many positions. Follow the boys at James Pumphrey. Follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. Follow me at Nolan J. Sykes. Very big thank you to our producers this week, Gavin Kinzel and Christina Felski. They kill it every time, man. And our writer, Griffin Wensler. Yeah, Griffin mm-hmm. Wensler. And What's if up, anyone Griffin? knows what kind of magic would cause toys to come alive <laughs> and how you could reverse that magic or harness it or... Yeah, we got to harness it. Or like lock them out of my room. They're little. They can climb under the door. Whoa, that's creepy as hell. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty rough. And the weird thing is when like you stuff a towel under the mm-hmm. door, they work together to like lasso <laughs> the doorknob right. and open it. They do not like each other, but they definitely <laughs> they are good at mobilizing. Wow. There's constant you know infighting, Maybe we could but learn they have one shared them. goal of terrorizing me and people <laughs> that I care about. So. That's crazy. All right. Uh, Bye. <laughs>